Welcome to TTB Community. I am Bob Demena, and here with me, as always, is the incredibly accountable Elliot Chibley. I know what that means. Mm-hmm. Nice and easy one. Thank you. So today's guest is John T. He is the founder and chief executive officer of Optolingo. Optolingo, if you think of like Duolingo, but it is even better. It's a language learning mobile app that teaches over 20 languages, including Circassian. And we talk about Jaunty's expertise in Circassian, how he learned some languages, how he came up with the idea, and how he developed it. It was an absolutely incredible conversation. We talk about history of language. We talk about meaning of language. We talk about so many things related to language and cultures and different types of languages that you can learn through the app. And it's it was really, really fascinating. It makes me want to start doing another language learning Mm-hmm. Yeah. So travel tip of the week, download the map of your destination for use offline. And you can do this on Google Maps. It doesn't have to be the entire country because that takes up a lot of space. But if you do certain cities at a time when you're in Wi-Fi, like right now, I have an entire area of my hometown as an offline map so that I can travel and not use data when I'm getting directions. It is pretty great. So before we get into the conversation, check out some of the things we offer. So first is the Traveler's Blueprint Travel Journal and Planner. It's perfect for those of you that like to keep record of everything. It offers tables for budget tracking, mindful travel tips, and details on how you can create your own itinerary layout. This planner can be downloaded through our website immediately upon purchase for you to fill out by hand, or you can fill it out on the computer. And it makes it just super easy to keep track of everything you need to plan the perfect trip from confirmation numbers, general insight on the country you plan on traveling to. And then the back of it is just a bunch of pages for you to actually journal about your experience. So the best thing, you can print it over and over again, and it's on sale now for $7.99. That's it. You buy it once and then you have it for every trip thereafter. Next up, we have the Traveler's Blueprint Video Tutorials, which is a five-part video class presented by an animated version of myself and Bob. The series is perfect to help you fill out the travel planner and journal with information and insight on how you can prepare for navigation, booking airfare, restaurant and blog research, itinerary layout, safety, local norms, and of course, being a thoughtful traveler. And that is available through our website for $25. It is a wonderful platform on Thinkific, and you get to go through all the courses. Yeah. And so, and they, they pair up very nicely. So if you do get the journal and then you pair that up with the video course, you'll essentially have everything you need to do this on your own, plan your own trip, save a lot of money. Now we take it a step further. And if you actually want to sit down with me one-on-one via Zoom and go over the details of your trip, and I'm talking every aspect of your trip from the dates you want to fly out, how to save money on airfare, how to navigate the city, how to find the best restaurants, everything you could think of. I'll sit down with you and, and be essentially be your travel consultant and help you plan this trip down to every minuscule detail, if that's your thing, of course. So keep that in mind and check out our website for pricing details on that. And as you all know, Bob and I are either Philly local or appreciate Philly from a distance. And we have our very own tour guide, Keschler, who will hook you up with an incredible Philadelphia experience. He offers a variety of tours where you can uncover the little-known history of the city or chat down on some food and cheesesteaks tours. Keschler is offering two tours exclusively through the Traveler's Blueprint, and you can find them on our website. However, if you do want something a bit different, feel free to email us and we can look at changing up the itinerary with you. 
If you find this podcast entertaining, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you love us, or if you love at least one of us, we'd be forever grateful if you could subscribe to the show and share some of our social media posts as a story on Facebook or Instagram. Because remember, we post clips and images of these podcasts to our social media every week, and we encourage you to give us feedback and ask us any questions you may have for that conversation. Lastly, if you want to be on the show, you can join us and drop us a line for the Travel Around Table series. You can send us your name, website, and a few travel-related topics you'd enjoy discussing. Thank you for listening and enjoy this next podcast. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Jaunty, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Thanks for having me. Bob and I are excited to have you on. If if anything's been more relevant to travel, it is what you do and what you provide. Uh, you are the CEO and founder of Optilingo, and it is a language learning app, website, company, and you just basically help people enjoy their experiences, learn new languages, and maybe have that better travel experience because they understand things. And so our conversation today, we'd love to talk to you about Optolingo, how you came about it, and some of your past travel experiences. So I guess the first, the first thing, let's get into some of your background. Um, where'd, you, where'd you go to school and how did you get into forming and founding Optolingo? Sure. Um, I'm probably the most surprised person I know that I do what I do today. Uh, I never... <laughs> I never in a million years thought that I would be working in the language learning space. So um, I went to, I grew up, I was born in California. I grew up in New Jersey. I went to school in upstate New York. I attended Vassar College, uh, although I did have a degree. I ha still have the degree <laughs> in uh, international studies. Uh, I did my MBA at New York University, uh, the uh, Stern School of Business. And then I I started my career in the area of agency work. So I started what was probably what we'd call now a interactive agency, right? Building interactive websites for businesses <laughs> that wanted to do e-commerce. Um, this is back in the late nineties. <clears throat> and I did that for a couple of years. And uh, I was a, I would say for the, there's been th kind of three phases of my career I was a, a serial entrepreneur. Um, I've been a, a Fortune 500 senior executive, and I've also worked in the areas of uh, management consulting. So those are kind of been the three phases of my career, and I've learned a lot by doing all of those things. And uh, a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to get into the language learning business. And the reason for that is is actually um, I'm a third generation refugee, so I'm the I'm the first person in 200 years to be born and grow up in a country where he is a citizen and is a native speaker of the language and has not been forced to run away, right? That's the first thing that's been true in over 200 years of my family's personal history. Wow. Um, and the other thing that's true is I'm the first person who was born and grew up not speaking our ethnic language, which is called Circassian. So as a child, um, you know, as the, ch as the, as the child of um, refugees, as a child of immigrants, there's always cultural challenges of integrating with into the United States. As the child of refugees, it's even more challenging because there's this 
feeling of war and displacement and trauma that's always in the background that's that's making your parents feel even more anxious and cautious about integrating not that anybody was against integrating it's just how do you do it the right way how do you make sure you're integrating with the right people not having people take advantage of you because hey that's how we ended up in you know as refugees so growing up as a child um i'm an ethnic circassian there are an estimated five million of us in the world and out of those estimated 5 million, less than a million live in our uh, uh, historical ethnic homeland, which is currently part of the Russian Federation and in North Caucasus. We are okay. just, just north of the state of the country of Georgia and uh, right between the Caspian and the Black Sea. So the, uh, the Winter Olympics that were held in Sochi a few years ago, Sochi was the former capital of our country before we were incorporated into the uh, Russian Empire. So as a result of that, my, my family is spread out across uh, what is, you know, modern day Russia, um, modern day Turkey and remnants of the Ottoman Empire. So um, I have family today in Russia, in Turkey, in uh, Syria, Jordan and uh, Israel. I have family who's migrated from the Middle East into uh, Europe. And then I have family in uh, North America as well. Wow. So growing up as a child, I don't ever remember a time where English was the only language that I was exposed to. I can't say that I grew up bilingual because that would not be fair. That would not be true. But I can't say that I grew up monolingual either. There was always, always Arabic in the background. There was always Circassian in the background. There was often some Turkish, some Russian, um, maybe some Hebrew here and there as well in our in the community that I grew up in, in New Jersey, in my ethnic community. So <clears throat> there were always these languages out there. There was always this desire for me to speak a language other than English so that I could connect with my relatives who lived outside of the United States. But most fundamentally, um, I never in my life had any sort of meaningful conversation with any of my grandparents, three of whom were alive for the majority of my life. And the reason for that is they did not speak English and I did not speak Circassian. And so um, as a result of that, I was effectively an ethnic cultural orphan. I was disconnected from the oral histories of my, of my family. I was disconnected from the oral histories of my people and coming from a small um, ethnic group with a language that is endangered, that has historically not been a written language. It's not as though there were books I could turn to that would fill in some of these gaps. So as a child, there was always this, this feeling of something that was missing. And there was also this um, openness to, to fill it and an opportunity to fill it because there were all these different people around me who spoke English. And as a child, the other thing, <clears throat> I think typically most people in my family spoke on average three languages or more, like completely fluently. I'm not talking like donde esta la biblioteca, like textbook. I'm talking <laughs> they could make jokes and curse and laugh and play and go to a store and negotiate and haggle in a minimum of three languages, right? Wow. That was the norm. That was the norm, you know? Uh, anything below that was kind of below average. And then there were family members who could do four or five languages. Again, no problem at all. So that's the environment in which I grew up. And that was always a part of my personal identity. And for whatever, I, I don't think anyone told me or forced me to, to think this way or to do this, but I always felt that I had to hide my personal identity from my professional identity, you know, because here you are, you're, you're working as a, either a serial entrepreneur or you're working at a 
top tier management consulting firm, or you're an executive at a large multinational publicly traded firm. And the last thing people want to hear is, well, tell me about your refugee backstory. You know, tell me about the fact that a lot of your family live in terrorist countries, you know, like yeah, the Middle right. East, you know, former Soviet Union. That's not exactly something you celebrate in, in, in everyday talk in, in corporate America. Not that I think people would look down on me. Just it's 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 embarrassing, dad. You know, it's like that, that kind of thing. Right. Right. Um, so there was always this desire to to embrace my personal passion and somehow find a way to make it part of my professional trajectory, right? So that's kind of the backdrop. Okay. Now I'm talking a lot and I'm throwing a lot at you guys. I see you guys nodding on the video. Yeah. Am I, are we doing okay here? Yeah, we're great. Well, yeah. great. So you, you currently are fluent in four language that you've told us and you dabble in six. So what are the four that you are fluent in? Sure. Well, first I want to make sure that we're clear about what fluency is, right? Um, we all, presumably are native English speakers, and we all are absolutely undeniably fluent in English, right? Um, but if I were to switch, and, and you know, I'll, I'll, one of my languages is, is uh, Circassian, right? Mm -hmm. So if I were to switch into Circassian right now, my Circassian, I do pass as a native speaker, um, but I don't believe that my Circassian is as strong as my English, but I'm still fluent. So sometimes people have this, this view that Fluency is this binary value and you're there and you're there yeah. or you're not, right? So fluency simply means that you can quickly and easily speak in a flowing manner. That, that's where the term fluency comes from. It's in a flowing manner, right? So um, if I were to switch into German and we were to speak in everyday basic conversation, I'm probably at a, a basic intermediate level. I have not maintained my German in years, decades, actually. In fact, the other day I was speaking with somebody online and I realized I did not know whether uh, I did not know the word for mobile telephone, because when I learned German, there were no mobile telephones. Right. right? That's funny. <laughs> so um, so uh, fluency simply means that within a specific domain, you are able to uh, fluidly express yourself and understand what people are saying to you without a whole lot of difficulty. Right. So, um, for example, in Circassian, we don't have words for modern technological issues. Right. So any native speaker of Circassian, the moment you get into physics or you get into the inside of a computer, the language falls apart. It has not kept up to be able to evolve there. So that's an example where you can be a native speaker um, and you're absolutely fluent almost by definition, but you're not going to be able to speak fluent, quote unquote, fluently. Um, so fluency just means you're comfortable within a specific domain of the language. Okay. Um, I'm fluent in English, quite obviously. Uh, I'm fluent in German. I'm fluent in Circassian. I, I never feel super comfortable with Russian, but my wife would argue I am fluent in Russian. She's a native speaker of Russian. We speak Russian in the house when we don't want the kids to understand what we're saying. That's um, awesome. <laughs> we, we actually don't speak English in the house, though. We speak Circassian in the house. Um fact, my, I'm raising my children to be uh, native speakers, uh, primary native speakers of Circassian, which is exceptionally rare. Even back in our ethnic homeland where the language is strongest, um, that's rare. That's wow. rare. So, um, but so English, Circassian, Russian, uh, German. And then um, I often say I don't speak Arabic and I really don't speak Arabic except for when I'm with relatives who are from the Middle East. And then I kind of do speak Arabic because I did, I, I was massively exposed to it as a child. Um, and every time I'm around my relatives who are from Syria, 
after a few days, I understand about 90% of what they say. And after a week or so, I'm actually speaking back to them in Arabic. So I know it's there. It's locked in my head somewhere. Um, my French is pretty not bad. Uh, reading and writing is much better than speaking, but that's a language I've not maintained in decades as well. Um, and, and if I see something in Turkish, I have low level Turkish skills. If I see something in Turkish, I can pretty much figure out what the gist of it is just because I've had so much exposure. And then I would say probably similar thing with Spanish, just because, you know, you speak English, German, French, there's a mix of Germanic and, um, uh, romance languages, mm -hmm. you get the vocabulary, you understand some basics of uh, romance language, grammar, inflections, masculine, feminine, direct objects, indirect objects, and just living in the United States, there's just so much Spanish around us. So that's kind of the hierarchy of language or language families that I can, I can get something out of, or I can put something into whether I'm listening or I'm speaking. So two questions. One is your, did your wife learn Circassian with you? <clears throat> or was she already a native speaker? She's a native speaker. Okay. She's a native speaker. Yeah. All right. And then she the... grew up completely bilingual. My wife grew up completely bilingual between um, Circassian and uh, uh, Russian. And actually she grew up in a, she grew up in a very, very tiny Jewish enclave in um, the place where we are, where I am, where my, where my family comes from and where she was born. It's uh, a, so within the Russian Federation, there are seven semi-autonomous republics, right? So Chechnya is the one that a lot of people might hear about. You might've heard of Dagestan. There's also three, uh, they're called titular republics because they have the title of Circassians somewhere in their name. The one that we are from is called, uh, in our language, Kabardino Balkaria. And I guess in English would be the Kabardino Balkarian Republic. Um, so that's where, that's where uh, my family's from originally, and that's where she grew up. There uh, is, there was, and still is a Jewish community there. Uh, in fact, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the North Caucasus is one of the only places that saw a net increase in uh, Jewish populations, just because historically, we've just been very tolerant of all religions, all nationalities, stuff like that. So she grew up in a, in a Jewish enclave. And what's very interesting is that for a while, she was fluent. I don't think she would say she's fluent today. But as a child, she was fluent in uh, a dialect of the Jewish language. I don't know what it's called in English, but it, it translates literally into uh, uh, mountain Jew, mountain Jew language. Uh, that's the that's the term that people there use for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's a common it, it is, I guess, a, a Yiddish um, because it's a combination of old Hebrew and Persian with a little bit of Russian mixed in as well. So wow. she was, uh, she was fluent in that because all of her friends spoke that language. And, you know, she was like the only uh, non-Jewish person in the whole community where she grew up. Wow. So there's only about 20,000 speakers of that language left today. There, there were um, hundreds of thousands of speakers of the language, but when the Soviet Union collapsed uh, and the borders became open with Israel, a lot of, a lot of those people emigrated to Israel and then they just started speaking modern standard Hebrew as opposed to yeah. uh, this dialect of the language. And then, you know, that was 30 years ago. There's a lot of older people who have passed away, a lot of younger people who have, you know, forgotten the language or whatever. So there's only estimated to be something like 20,000 speakers of that language left. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah, so that's I, interesting. The, the second part of that question is, 
with communication with languages, or I should say with languages, it's all about communication and travel. You communicate constantly with people at your destination. And if you don't have, I think Bob can speak to this, if you don't have <clears throat> the understanding of that language, the experience is sometimes less than in, if you don't, even if you speak the language a little bit. So with your travels, have you found that going to visit relatives in the Middle East, in uh, Russia and other parts of the world, has that been easier for you and made the experience better? Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, absolutely. There's nothing. Look, when you are a stranger in a strange land, um, everything is a little bit foreign and alien to you, right? And so uh, I'll, I'll give an example of my teenage daughters who do not speak Circassian uh, very well. Uh, we took them to uh, Russia a few years ago to visit relatives there. And now think about this, right? They're, they're your typical uh, American teenage uh, girls. They grew up in the United States. They, they're familiar with our heritage, our background. It's not like this is a shock to them. And now you go to uh, a country that is very foreign to you called Russia. And then within Russia, you travel to this region. You know, our region of Russia is kind of like Puerto Rico is the United States. It's, it's, it's part of the country, but it's got its own distinct culture. Um, everyone there speaks the national language, but they also speak their cultural language, right? So now you, you travel into Russia and you see this strange alphabet around you. The people there have a different culture. There's different social norms. I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying it's worse. It's just different, right? So for example, uh, Russian people think that smiling in public is a sign of um, being mentally infirm, right? You don't smile, you smile with your friends. Oh, I didn't you know smi that. Well, no, you smile with your friends, but smiling in public historically has been just something you wouldn't do. Um, <laughs> making, making small talk is not something you would do, right? It, talking to your close friends, very in depth. Yes, absolutely. But making chit chat with strangers, that's just not something they do. Sounds like New York City. <laughs> don't Sounds smile. Like City. Don't talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah, just keep so, walking. <laughs> so you get to this strange place. There's there's different cultural norms. And you're surrounded by this alphabet that looks completely foreign to you because some of the letters look like English letters, but a lot of them don't. You hear all these different sounds. And now you travel to, um, you know, the, our, our region, which is not exactly the, the most wealthy region around. And things are even a little bit stranger, right? And now you're looking around and there's nothing, there's very little that reminds you of home that you can grab onto, right? And all the people that you're meeting, oh, is this my relative or is this a friend of my father's? Is it a direct relative, an indirect relative? Some of these people look like me. Some of these people don't look like me. So there's no one that you know personally. There's people that love you because they're your relatives, but this might be the first time you've ever met them, right? And then on top of that, there's all this banter around you, but and you can't pick out a single word of it. And by the way, where we're from, it, people switch very quickly between Russian and Circassian because that's just what they do. It's kind of like the way Spanglish exists in the United States. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you came here from Germany and you didn't speak Spanish or English and you hear the mix of them going back and forth and sometimes you know, this word is part of this language, but it has a different accent because it's inserted into the other language. Sometimes you apply this grammatical structure to that vocabulary word. Sometimes you just switch the language altogether. So now you hear all the stuff going on and uh, it's hard. It's hard to find something that is of comfort that you can grab onto, right? And now if you are a traveler, one of the things you want to do is to explore 
not just a place. If that were the case, we would just look at pictures. You want to explore the people, the culture. You want to, you want to uh, breathe everything in, right? Um, and that becomes remarkably difficult when there's no ability to communicate your basic needs, wants, and desires, nor to understand just the low-level banter of what's going on around you, right? Uh, is this group over there celebrating uh, a wedding or the birth of a child, or is it just a birthday party and that's how they celebrate birthday parties over there, right? Mm -hmm. These group of people that are shouting in the streets, is that joy or frustration? Is this a dangerous situation or a happy situation, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in the Middle East, there's a, a shout that Arabs will make that is very frightening to Westerners, and it's a shout of joy, you know? So um, I think that going into a, a place where you are new to the culture and you have very, very limited understanding of the culture or the language, specifically the language, it makes things a lot more challenging and mentally draining. So mm -hmm. for me speaking, I think the only place I've ever been... Um, I was in Italy a couple of times and I don't speak any Italian. Um, and it's hard for me to make out what the words should be because of all the apostrophes and everything. So that was, uh, but you know, Italian's close enough to romance language. Well, it's a romance language. That wasn't a big issue. The, the only part of the world I've ever been to besides Italy where I spoke ze literally zero of the language was Japan. And um, fortunately this was after the Olympics. So a lot more Japanese learned English and a lot of signage was in English all the people that worked on the subway stations were trained to help foreigners with English. Um, but that's the only time in the world that I've ever been someplace where I spoke zero of the language. And then I realized, wow, this is how most normal Americans must feel when they travel. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so that's, that's what I love about the platform. So we've had conversations on mindful travel. It's very trendy now, slow travel, mindful travel. Everybody wants to try to yeah, uh, sort of integrate into the culture. And the number one thing everybody says you should do is learn a, bit, a little bit of the language because it will enhance your trip significantly. However, it's the one thing that the the least amount of people actually do because it's so challenging for for Americans. I mean, that, that didn't grow up in a multicultural family that are just no English that unfortunately don't really get it in school until the later years or college. So it's, it's hard. It's just hard. It, and to learn it as an adult, as I can speak to uh, myself, it's, it's just time consuming and, and it, it's just hard to do. So yeah. I want to get into your platform now. I want to get into Optolingo. Um, so can you take us maybe to where the idea came from and, and essentially what it is and how people use it to, to learn languages? Sure. Sure. Um, well, there's actually a really interesting side backstory, not side story. It's a backstory, and it's one that um, we didn't get into uh, in our email communication. And it's actually a really awesome story because this is how it all started. That's what we so, love. Um, I was in my 30s when I decided to learn Circassian. And the challenge we had is that there are no books written for non-native speakers of the language. Um, there are a few places in the Russian Federation today where it is taught, but it's taught to children who read and write the Cyrillic alphabet and whose parents speak the language, right? So it's, it's kind of like the way, uh, imagine that you're uh, a, a little four-year-old Spanish kid in the United States and there's a book at the bookstore written completely in Spanish and you go, hey, mom, read me this bedtime story at night. Well, you already speak Spanish to your mom and she speaks Spanish. And what she's doing is she's pointing to the book and saying all the words in Spanish so you can learn this, the, 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 the pronunciation of, of the alphabet, right? 
that's very different than, you know, me, a 44 year old guy who would say, I don't speak Spanish. Let me get a book that walks me through the alphabet um, and tells me, hey, there's six or eight irregular verbs you should really be aware of. And here's how they operate. And, you know, this whole uh, las, les, los, let me explain what that is with masculine, feminine and neuter nouns. And so, right? so that's that's a very different starting place and a very different goal as well. Right. This four-year-old hypothetical uh, Latino kid in that I just described wants to listen to a bedtime story, whereas this 44-year-old man that is me wants to understand how to speak the language, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there were no materials to learn the language for a non-native speaker. And the alphabet is phenomenally difficult. It has 56 letters. Oh, wow. Um, it has 56 letters. And just to give you uh, a sense of what the sounds sound like, yes. right? We have a sh sound, we have a s sound, and we have a s sound, right? Sh, s, s. Those are three different letters. Sh, awesome. s, s. We have, um, we have six sounds that have a K-like sound in them. There's k, h, s, which can also be k, depending on your dialect. Then there's also qu, qu, uh, qu, <laughs> right? Then there's k, which is maybe it's a K sound, maybe it's an X sound, and there's qu, right? So learning the sound for, and it, it, it can be remarkably difficult because for example, the word sh means bullet. It can also mean fat, it's a homonym, right? The word s means to sell, sh, s, right? S means to know. So in everyday speech, you know, sh, s, s, they mean completely different things. So it took me about a year to get the alphabet down. And what I did wow. was, um, what I did was I identified, um, at the time the internet really was, I mean, this is like 15 years ago. So the internet wasn't as big as it was today. I, and I didn't know as much as I know about applied linguistics as I do now. So I started pulling down vocabulary lists, the California achievement test, um, <clears throat> all the words, the dolce words, they're, they're called sight words. It's like what a five-year-old should know. Butterfly, red, blue, happy, sad. I started pulling on all these words. And somewhere I had read that um, about 2,000 words account for about 80% of what, 80 to 90% of what everyday speak people will say in everyday speech. So I compiled my own word list and I worked with a whole bunch of my circassian friends who are from Russia who could write them all out for me. And then I sat down with my dad, who's a native speaker, but who cannot read or write the language. And I would brokenly pronounce these words. And then he would tell me how to properly pronounce these words, sometimes with lots of fighting, because my dad speaks the way people speak in everyday speech. So, you know, the example would be none of us would say button. We'd say button. Yeah. Right? But it's still spelled with two T's. Right. Yep, right. So you can imagine all the arguments between uh, <laughs> the older dad and his younger son going through that uh, stuff. Um, so I learned a couple thousand words, and that then gave me what I needed to start going through um, various books and stuff like that. And what I found was there was nothing out there for me to learn. So I ended up building my own materials. And I, at the time, I was living in northern New Jersey, where we have the Circassian Benevolent Association. I was an officer there for 10 years, and I taught the Sunday school there for seven years. And in my time there, I taught easily two or 3,000 people some various, some, some level of the language, literally ranging from, you know, five-year-old children to 65-year-old, old, older people, um, 
older people being fluent in a language, but wanting to learn how to read and write little children, not wanting anything other than to go home and watch cartoons, but their mom, mm-hmm. mom and dad sent them to Sunday school. <clears throat> so I started building um, presentation materials, uh, PowerPoint slides, and our community in New Jersey is very diverse. We're from all over the world there. So um, friends and family were asking, can I share these with my relatives in Turkey? Can I share these with my relatives in Israel? Can I share these with my relatives in Syria or Jordan? And I said, yes, of course. Um, And a lot of those materials were translated into multiple languages and they were sent back to me. I released everything kind of open source. So as time went on, I had this big stack of materials that was wholly unique, that was built from the perspective of somebody who did not speak the language fluently, that was tested by teaching it to other people and in a classroom setting and saying, all right, that doesn't work, this does work, so on and so forth. And what I realized is people don't care about grammar. and, and, and honestly, I'm not equipped to teach grammar and I'm not equipped to translate grammatical principles in a dying language into Arabic and Turkish and French and, and English and all the other languages that people were translating my materials into. So I focused on high frequency vocabulary words, right? Trying to get to those 80 to 90% of words you would hear in everyday speech. I focused on high frequency useful phrases, right? And then I focused on drills and drills and drills and drills. And I avoided the idea of homework or memorization and really just focused on repetition, repetition, repetition. Hmm. So um, people started videotaping my my, uh, uh, presentations and they traveled around the world. And I thought, wow, this is really fun. It's really interesting. It's really exciting. I wonder if there was some way I could commercialize this at some point in the future. And during this time, in order to house the intellectual property that I was generating, I created a not-for-profit foundation. So I do have a registered 501c3 entity that just owns this intellectual property and makes it freely available. And the reason for that is um, way back in the day, people were putting up YouTube videos and YouTube was striking them down saying, there's copyright infringement, this doesn't belong to you. So part of the reason I created this foundation was to say, this foundation exists to own this intellectual property, which is free. And that way, you know, long after my demise from this world, this intellectual property will still be free. Um, so, I, and I put a fair amount of my own money into building these materials, researching these materials, hiring translators, you know, all that stuff. So a couple of years ago, this is probably five years ago now, I got an email or I got a message on Facebook from an, a, a fellow ethnic Circassian who thanked me for teaching him Turkish. And I thought, well, I, I don't speak Turkish. How did I, how on earth did I teach you Turkish? So long story short, he is a Syrian Circassian who was displaced during the war and was living basically as a refugee in Turkey and was using my materials to learn Circassian before the war. And um, after the war, what he realized is because of the way that I had kind of created my, my language materials. Basically what I did was I created everything in Excel and PowerPoint. And I said, here's an English column, here's a Russian column, here's an Arabic column, here's a Turkish column, here's a Circassian column. So everything was translated across columns and you could say, you know, uh, in Russian means how are you? It means marhaba in Arabic, it means marhaba in Turkish and it means dawushit in Circassian, right? Um, so you could see that all the way across. And you could do that for a couple thousand vocabulary words and a couple thousand um, phrases as well. So he said, what I did was I I took 
your materials, which are free. And I threw away everything. Sorry. I threw away everything other than the Turkish and the Arabic. And I used your materials to learn 2,000, 2,500 vocabulary words and about a thousand phrases. And it was enough for me to get a job and get wow. out of a refugee camp. So thank you. And then I That's thought incredible. to myself, geez, you know, I have something here. I have something pretty amazing here. You know, I have a commercially viable method because I had never in my life set out to teach Turkish. I had never in my life set out to teach Arabic. The grammatical systems and the languages of Circassian and English and Turkish and Arabic are completely unrelated. It's like Chinese and Spanish. No, I mean, there's some common vocabulary, but no common grammatical rules, um, just nothing in common, very little in common. And yet somehow my method worked. So I, that's when I said, you know, I've got this nonprofit. It kind of sucks money out of my wallet. I have this passion. Let me see if I can commercialize what I know and use that, you know, to, to fund a nonprofit and maybe it'll be a business as well. So here we are uh, a couple of years later and we have this thing called Optolingo and we have 20, 20 languages on the platform, uh, soon to be 21. We're looking to add Hungarian in the next couple of weeks. And uh, really, so, so what sets us apart and what makes us different than a lot of the other things that are out there, and there's lots of great resources today that are out there. Um, you know, everyone's familiar with who they are. I don't need to say their names, but they're all great resources. Um, but, you know, if you look at who, who those companies are, they're kind of either run by computer programmers or people from an academic background or book publishers or, you know, people like that. I don't think any one of those platforms was created by someone like me who said, how can I help people to learn this dying language so they can talk to their grandparents before their grandparents die? How can I help retain my ethnic language so that my heritage does not disappear from this planet? Right. And then who had the experience that I just shared. So that's a very different, yeah. that's a very different starting point. So we've got these 20 soon to be 21 languages. And really the way that we think about Optolingo is there's three there's three parts to our secret formula, right? There's the content. And so the content is comprised of um, in, in our beginner courses, which is all that are available on the site today. We do have our intermediate courses done, but the programming work to get them up is still in progress. So on our beginner courses, we cover about 1500 vocabulary words, which is about 80 to 85% of everyday spoken speech. In the next level of courses, we get you up to about 2,500 words, which probably gets you to 85, 90, 90% of everyday speech. There's diminishing returns as you learn vocabulary. Um, for example, the first, the first 20 words in most languages accounts for 50% of all the spoken words in that language, right? So there are diminishing returns. So we, have, we cover about 1,500 vocabulary words. Those 1,500 vocabulary words fall into 1,500 phrases. Those 1,500 phrases are organized around every facet of life, ranging from I'm lost to can you help me to I have a broken bone to you need an x-ray to um, where can I buy tampons to um, where's the grocery store, right? So what we've done is we've taken all of these vocabulary words, we've embedded them into about 1,500 uh, highly useful phrases. And every single phrase um, I beta tested. The reason I'm fluent in Russian is because I beta tested Russian on myself to see <laughs> how, how can we, how can we kind of get the secret formula down? And the secret formula is not secret. It's just hard to replicate. 
every phrase is on average less than seven syllables long and uses only about four or five words, right? And the okay. reason for that is they're very short and so they're very easy to remember. Mm -hmm. but the other thing is we've taken a lot of time and care to construct phrases that are designed to be mixed and matched so that you can recompile them to say things you've never actually explicitly been taught, right? So in other words, if you open up a phrase book, you might hear something like, excuse me, sir, I'm lost. Can you direct me to the nearest hotel? That's a lot of words to learn for something that you can use in one situation, right? But excuse me, that's a phrase. You can use that anywhere. Excuse me. Excuse me, I'm lost. Excuse me, what time is it? Excuse me, is that my train, right? Excuse me, you're sitting in my seat. So excuse me, um, can you help? Can you help me pick up my luggage? Can you help me order something? Can you help me read this train schedule? Can you help? That is another discrete phrase, right? So I'm lost. Excuse me, can you help? I'm lost. You can use that at the train station, at the grocery store, at the hotel. So we combine these phrases and we design them so that they can be explicitly mixed and matched. So you can say tens of thousands of things just by learning these 1500 things, right? So we've got our, we've got our content, we've got our methodology and our methodology is actually very, it's, it's mind numbingly simple, right? What we do is we, we use what's called a five day study program. Uh, it was, it was popularized by Cornell. I forget who invented it. Um, but basically what we do is we say, look on a Monday, so we advise, we don't do streaks. We don't say do this every day. What we do say is do it five days a week, you know, hypothetically Monday through Friday, because people need time off. We need to give you time away from studying so you can forget, so you can remember, because that's part of the memory consolidation process. And the other thing is, is, you know, there's this annoying thing called life, which gets in the way of our, you know, theoretical goals. So um, having, ha telling people work, you know, do something five out of seven days a week is a really nice way to kind of let them know that they can fall off the wagon and still get back on track. They can take time off, stuff like that. So the way that our, our, our methodology works, <clears throat> the way that our methodology works is on a Monday, we're going to give you 15 phrases, right? So we have a hundred lessons on a Monday. We're going to give you 15 phrases. We're going to say, you're going to listen and repeat these 15 phrases. Then there's a little tiny pause. And then we're going to say, do you remember how to say these phrases that we just taught you? And invariably, um, you know, you might remember two out of the 15. Um, but what this does is it actually, it's not a simple listen and repeat. And it's not even shadowing, which is a different uh, 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 language learning method. method. Um, it's a combination of those two. Plus it forces your brain to go between passive recall and active recall. Because if I say to you, listen and repeat, boom, 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 boom. You're listening, you're repeating, you are forming passive recall. So if I then say, um, you know, I said the word in Russian, hello, earlier in this conversation, Izrasvetya. You probably remember, oh yeah, he said something like that. That's passive recall. If I then say to you, say the word for hello in Russian, oh, I have to now re actively recall that memory and repeat it. That's a different part of the brain, yeah. right? Then the other thing is we are one of the only, if not the only app on the market that forces you to speak, right? You are speaking for 50% of the course time because you're listening and you're repeating. There are other apps out there where you can never, you could theoretically never open your mouth, click on your little glass phone, right? And get complete, you can complete the whole course and now they say you're fluent. 
I have no, nobody says, I want to learn how to type in a language. I want to learn how to text in a language. I want to learn how to do multiple choice. They say, I want to speak a language. I want to learn how to speak a language. So we get you to speak the language. So uh, in, in that lesson, we then say, do you remember how to say these things? And it activates that brain circuitry. But then most critically, because it's listen and repeat, and because we're going back and forth between active and passive recall, we are forcing you to build the neuromuscular pathways that will allow you to achieve fluency because you're not sitting there thinking, okay, so let me, right? For example, in Russian, sit in the car, right? Sit in the car. This is something you would say, hey, get in the car, sit in the car. I don't have to think, okay, uh, the word for sit is and if I want to make it polite, uh, maybe because I don't know you or because it's formal or I just want to make it nice, I would say sedities. And then is it vamashinu or na machinu and machina, but it's inflected, so it's direct object. Is it machina or machina? No, sedites vamashinu, okay? Or I'll take you home. Ya provoju tebe domoi, all right? Ya provoju tebe domoi, I'll take you home. So now, guess what? Phraseology, this is what we call our course. I can put these two things together. Sit in the car, I'll take you home, right? Super useful every day. There's nothing out there. I mean, sit, car, take you home. Those are high frequency words. Mm -hmm. So, but by building that neuromuscular pathway between active recall, passive recall, understanding the context, and then being able to spit out those collection of motor movements in your mouth to say those words, that's part of the secret sauce that we have. Yeah. That reminds me of studying in college because there is there's a massive difference for me because I think I have great passive memory because when I take tests and there's multiple choice answers, mm -hmm. it's much easier. But if there's a fill in the blank <clears throat> answer, that is exponentially harder because mm -hmm. you actually have to recall that info. And most of the language learning apps I've seen, it really is trying to mix those those two, the passive and the active, and it's all about memory. Yeah. But it's 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 not just regurgitation. What you're trying to do is actually hold on to it and then actually build that because you, you have the potential to have multiple neuro connections, right? And that's what maintains it. It's not just the one that could die off, but having a few keeps it longer. Yep. And so I I, I love it. I think it's great. Um I do want to talk a little bit because I think when people start learning a language, I myself have done this. I, I think I am, Bob, you may be able to speak to it as well, but I don't think I know Spanish that well, but I can have rudimentary conversations, but sometimes I'm embarrassed to speak it because I don't know it fully. And I think people, including myself, need to get over it and it is not embarrassing. It, it shows that you're trying, it shows that you care and it the only way to improve is by speaking poorly so that people can assist you in learning it. Yeah. So there's, um, there's some truth in what you said, but there's also a popular myth in what you just said. All right. Respectfully. Yeah. So um, there, it is absolutely true that you need to learn by doing and that you're going to make mistakes and you learn through your mistakes. That is absolutely true. Where people get frustrated is the second part of your statement. It presumes that everyday native speakers that you are interacting with who are going about their lives are motivated, ready, willing, and able yeah. to correct you. Yeah. Right. And it also presumes that you are 
ready, willing, and able, and open to accepting critical feedback. Now, <clears throat> I think if, if somebody, if I'm walking down the street, I mean, I think I'm a nice guy. I think you guys are nice guys. If we're walking down the street and some guy walks up to us and says in broken English, I'm lost and looking for X, we're going to try to help that guy. I don't think any of us is going to be uh, uh, an asshole, sorry for language, <laughs> and, and correct his grammatical yes. imperfection or yep. say, oh, no, you, you said uh, it's not a tell, it's <laughs> hotel, right? We're not going to do that in yeah. part because it's mean and in part because we're busy. The other thing is nearly you know, most of the research on applied linguistics shows that active correction actually is demotivating to a learner and demotivation is the biggest Demotivation and stress are the biggest mental blocks to breaking through and learning a language successfully. Interesting. Okay. So, and th this is, this is, you know, I, I would say there's always somebody out there who would be counter to this, but this is probably 80% of applied linguistics would agree with that. The research bears out what I just said. So, um, but you do need that practice. So <clears throat> there, you know, when I was uh, younger and I was learning German, the way I would practice is by drilling, right? So I'd go into a drill session and somebody would say, say this 38 times. And then they would say, turn to your partner and ask them their name. And they'll tell you your name, ask them what day of the week it is. They'll tell you what day of the week is. Just keep practicing practice with active correction, or here's a worksheet and just go to town for, for an hour. Uh, I'm going to the store. I went to the store. I will go to this. And that's not good either because it kind of per turns your brain into mush. Okay. So what is required, so the whole linguistic theory that we are based on, we're based on the research of two applied linguistics, each of whom are giants in the field of applied linguistics. Uh, the first one is uh, Professor uh, Stephen Krashen. He's, uh, uh, he's pretty much retired now, but he's at a University of Southern California, and his language theory is called comprehensible input. And basically what he says is we understand, we learn languages when we understand messages, and then we are able to acquire languages when we are able to um, express those messages in a low stress environment, right? And he draws the distinction between learning and acquisition. Learning is a conscious effort and something that has been learned can be forgotten. Acquisition is an unconscious effort. And once you acquire something, you can never forget it. That's why we never forget how to ride a bicycle. I can explain how to read a, how to how to ride a bicycle for an hour, but until you step on that bicycle, you're not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. And to use an analogy, that's like the difference between teaching grammar versus speaking the language in a way that's grammatically acceptable, right? So the other um, the other field of research that we draw upon is from um, Paul Nation. He's now uh, uh, professor emeritus at a, a university in New Zealand. I forget which university. And he's done a lot of work on what he calls the four strands, which are the four different areas of language learning and vocabulary acquisition. So putting all that linguistic theory together, these guys have collectively published thousands of peer-reviewed um, uh, academic um, re research, right? Putting all that together, part of what we do, we don't do testing, right? So in Optolingo, we don't, testing is stressful. In this five-day study program that I just talked about, we, we teach you these 15 um, phrases. Then on a Tuesday, we teach you a 15 new phrases and we review the first 15. Then on a Wednesday, we teach you another 15 and we review the previous two days. So instead of saying to you, study, 
and memorize and all that other stuff. What we really do is we teach you these phrases that stack on top of each other. So you're going to hear the word hello in a variety of different phrases just because it's a high frequency word. But then you're going to hear each of those phrases 15 times because of the way that we do our repeating systems. And 15 times is kind of considered like the magic number on the outbound of how many times it takes to hear something before you build that active recall. Okay. So that's part of what we do. The other thing that we do, and this goes back to your point uh, previously, in every single phrase that we provide, so we've got seven languages that don't use the Latin alphabet, um, we provide a transliteration. So for example, uh, we've got Hindu, I'm sorry, we've got Hindi, we've got Korean, we've got Japanese, we've got Mandarin, we've got Arabic, uh, Russian, and Circassian. So we've got seven languages that don't use a Latin alphabet, so we transliterate everything for you. So uh, if you see something in uh, Arabic, uh, right? If you don't have the Arabic script, we're actually going to write, we're, we'll try to pronounce it for you, right? K H A F, right? We'll do that. Okay. Um, so that's one thing that we do. Then the other thing that we do is we provide what's called a gloss translation. So this is another part of our secret sauce. And this is how we teach you grammar without teaching you grammar. So to use an example, um, in German, you would say, uh, wie heißt du or wie heißen sie to say, what's your name, All right? Mm -hmm. So we'll say, we'll give you, what's your name? What is your name? Then we'll say, wie heißen sie, right? Wie heißen sie, and then below that, we'll say in English, wie, how, heißen, to be called, sie, you formal, you polite. So now you can see, or the same thing is actually true in, in Russian, right? Kak tebe zavut, kak vas zavut. Kak, how, vas, you, formal, zavut, are called. And we'll actually say are hyphen called because zavut is one word, but in English we have helping verbs. We want to show you that this, these two verbs in English, or these two verbs in English that are connected by a hyphen, they equal that one word above it. Okay. And we put it in exactly that order, right? So what, you're end, what you end up reading is this kind of broken English and it's designed to be broken because it's designed to show you word for word, what you are actually learning in your target language, mm. right? So when you, so another example would be in uh, Russian, uh, you know, do you have something? Yeast means, uh, do you have, it means, is it at you, right? So I say, U means at, tebia means you informal, vas is you informal, yeast is to have, to have possession of, right? So is there at you in your possession something? That is how that that is how the, the, the language is structured. So when you go through 1500 phrases and you see all these grammatical patterns that are explained, not in grammatical terms, but in everyday normal terms within the context of the phrase that we're teaching you, you intuitively begin to build a very high level of native-like fluency and, and mastery of grammatical principles, even if we've never taught you an explicit grammatical principle. And that's how children learn languages. That's, that's really interesting. It, it sounds is. awesome. It, yeah, it sounds, it sounds incredibly effective. And so something that I, I wanted, I guess, transition to a little bit is now that we understand the process, we understand your platform. One thing that I know a lot of people say or think when trying to learn a language is that they will have to continue to learn it forever, have to use it or they'll forget it. Mm -hmm. um, 
what do you have to say to, to that thought process? Yeah. So that's another, that's another thing I have a lot to say about. <laughs> um, I'm a member of a number of polyglot Facebook groups that are filled with real polyglots, not people who want to be a poly, like people who I personally know speak eight, 10 languages, you know, to a high level of fluency. And there was this question that came up, you know, at what point do you learn a language where you kind of don't forget it? And I think there was consensus and, you know, the very few, I mean, there's a handful of people there that are um, um, academic linguists, but I think that most of them are not. There was consensus that getting up to a level of fluency of B1, and I'll define that in a minute, getting up to a level of fluency of B1 is the part where you never really forget. You just get really rusty. And, um, what does that mean? So there is a, there is a, there are a number of fluency scales that have been developed. There's one for Russian called uh, Triki. There's one for uh, uh, Japanese. I forget what it's called. There's one for Chinese, but there is a European standard that was created by the Council of Europe. It's used broadly within the EU, but also within Council of Europe member states. So for example, Turkey and Russia are not part of the EU, but they are members of the Council of Europe. And it's called the CEFR, and it's the Common European Framework Reference. I think that's what it stands for. And they define four level, I'm sorry, eight, six levels of fluency. Um, well, seven. There's zero, right, which is nothing. Then there's A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, C2. A1 means you can survive. C2 means you are uh, functionally fluent. You can, other than your accent, you would pass as a native speaker. And then they have definitions for what you can do at each of these levels of fluency as regards to the four domains of language learning, which are reading, writing, speaking, and listening. So B1 is considered um, uh, intermediate fluency. You may not be able, you can watch a movie, you may, you, you'll get the gist of it, but you won't know everything that's going on. You can talk to native speakers as long as you're not using idiomatic expressions or slang too heavily. You know, that's kind of a, a it's a good benchmark. And at that point, you probably know about 4,000 words and um, you, you could read a book with difficulty, um, but you could get behind the language. So that's probably where my level was. I, I may have even been on a B2 in German when I was living in Germany um, with a German family as a foreign exchange student. And um, I've not maintained my German in over 20 years, over 20 years. Um, so that's a... Es ist, äh, es, ist nicht so, es ist nicht so schwer für mich, auf Deutsch zu sprechen, aber es ist eine, es ist eine lange Zeit gewesen, als ich habe mein Deutsch jeden Tag gesprochen habe. Aber ich kann ein bisschen Deutsch, wenn ich will und wenn es eine Möglichkeit gibt. So, I can still go into German. So, it's been a long time since I've spoken yeah, my yeah. German, but I can still speak it if there's an opportunity, if there's a possibility. Um, and it's not terrible. It's not great, but it's not terrible. How long Elliot, were you in Germany? Elliot, did you get that? I know you you studied abroad in Germany. Did you understand what he said? I understood several words, but not the whole thing at all. <laughs> so I was uh, I I lived with a German family for six weeks, and you picked up all that, and you still yeah. have it. Because yeah. I lived with a German family for four months, and we <laughs> <laughs> we 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 learned German probably once or twice a week, and but my German family also spoke. English. the The host mom was from San Francisco, and the host mm. father was that was your Germany. downfall. That was your, I, Elliot. I I would maybe consider you a B one 
speaker with Spanish. No, because when we went to Peru, you picked it up and you were having conversations with everybody without having studied it in several years. Right? I, I think sp Spanish is by far my second best language. But so, Germany, I, think, I wish I had more of. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I don't actively maintain my German. If there are people on the street who speak German, I will literally walk up to them. Strangers, I would never do this um, to an English speaker, right? But I'll yeah. literally walk up to people on the street and say, Entschuldigung, ich kann ein bisschen Deutsch. Es ist eine lange Zeit, als ich mein Deutsch jeden Tag gesprochen habe. Und ich suche doch immer für eine Chance, mein Deutsch zu üben. Uh, können wir auf Deutsch sprechen? So I'll right. walk up to people and I'll say, so what I just said, uh, excuse me, um, it's been a long time since I've spoken German, uh, but I'm always looking for a chance to, to use it. Uh, is it possible for us to speak German? And then I, and I don't care what mistakes I make. And I'm just yeah. looking, uh, woraus kommen Sie? Uh, sind Sie hier auf Reise? Where are you, where are you from? Are you mm -hmm. here on vacation, on a trip? You know, so I just look for a chance, but that's the extent of my maintenance. And that's probably, you know, once a year that I get a chance to do that. But it's just stuck. And I but I think I probably got to a B211 and so B2 level. And so it's just a matter of, you know, dusting it off and, and making it non-rusty. Right. OK. Um, so I think there's probably truth that if you are truly at a B1 level, B2 level somewhere, you're truly there, not somebody who took a test and passed, but somebody who can speak to people. I think if you're there, then it, it probably never goes to zero. It just gets rusty. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that if I sat down and, you know, I have access to the alpha courses on Alptolingo, if I did the, the, the basic course, which we call phraseology, and then I did the intermediate course, which we call wordology, um, I'd be golden, right? I just haven't found, I haven't made time for that. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah I'd, I'd probably say I'm A2 in German right now. So you could, you could go through the course and you could probably get to a decent B1, you know, our intermediate course. We, our intermediate course will take you to a B1. Um, maybe B2, maybe B2. Um, I think the answer is a little different for children. Um, I have a very, so I'm going to give a shout out to my good friend, Tetsu Jung. Uh, he's a polyglot based in Montreal. He's fluent in five languages. His children are fluent in five languages, uh, including <laughs> Mandarin, Japanese, English, French, and Spanish, right? So um, his, and he's got a PhD and he's written a book on uh you know, raising multilingual kids. Awesome guy. All your listeners should definitely check him out. What, um, what is his name again? Tetsu Young. And he's based out of Montreal. Okay. So, um, and he's a traveler too. So, but um, he would argue, and I think there's truth to this too, that as a child growing up speaking a language, if you, and this is the goal with our children, if you can get, if you can get to 12 or 13 years old, that's when puberty kicks in and there's some changes that take place in the brain. It effectively locks in the language. Yeah. We've all heard stories or we have friends of people who came to this country or went to another country and they were fluent at a language at the age of three, four, five, six, even maybe seven or eight, you know, at seven or eight, you're not going to forget all of it, but you're not going to have, you, you don't lock in that fluency, but 12 or 13 years, once you hit puberty, there are a number of changes that take place in the brain that are driven by hormones that mm -hmm. kind of lock in some structures, right? So uh, I think that's my answer for, for that part of the equation. Now, having said that, um, there's really two types of people out there that learn languages. There's people who learn them because they like to do it as a hobby. That's a smaller 
percentage. Those are, you know, serial polyglots and they learn a language and they move on to the next one. And maybe that's what makes them happy. Some of them may want to maintain the language. Others don't. Then there's people who are learning the language because it has active use in their everyday life, whether they want to use it for work, study, travel, love interests, family interests, whatever have you. So, you know, there is this temptation to think about learning as a linear process that has a terminal endpoint. And that's not true. If that were true, then we would all graduate high school or college and we would be able to speak as well as Shakespeare or win a Pulitzer Prize. And that's not true. We're all learning every day how to express ourselves more fully. And by the way, every day, everybody who's listening to this enjoys their time listening to this, watching a movie, listening to the radio, listening to a podcast, reading something on the internet, reading a book in English, right? So if you're learning French, if you're learning Italian, if you're learning Mandarin, there's no reason, there's no reason I can think of that you'd say, oh, I'm done. I never have to do this again. Um, now I'm going to lock this in a vault and say I'm fluent in Mandarin. Right, right. You, presumably you're learning, and I just use Mandarin as an example. It could be Spanish. It could be Portuguese. Presumably you're learning that language because you want to engage in that culture. You want to watch movies, listen to podcasts, right? So I, I, I think, yes, you absolutely need to maintain a language. Otherwise it gets rusty. It'll, it'll degrade. Now how, rapidly it'll degrade is a function of all the variables that I just described. Mm -hmm. But I can't imagine other than a few people who just like to learn languages because they're curious and that's fine. And that's a very small portion of people. I can't imagine why you would invest so much effort to learn a language and then just take to zero your exposure or use. Right. 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 So I'm curious, is there a certain point with the CEFR? Let's use that as the basis where you start to think in that language because with when learning a new language you often you think about it in your native language and then translate it to that language yeah so um i'm very qualified and very unqualified to answer that question um let me tell you why i'm very unqualified i have a condition called aphasia which i did not know existed until about two years ago and what that means is when I close my eyes and somebody says, can you imagine a beach? I don't see anything. I see black. I see if you lock me into a closet with no lights and said, open your eyes. That's what I see when I close my eyes. Yeah. I have zero ability to visualize anything. And I have zero. Um, the other, I don't know what the word for this is, but I realize this is something different as well. I don't have an inner monologue. So no. okay. most people can, 98% of the human population can close their eyes and visualize something. Mm -hmm. And an equal number of people have an inner monologue where they actually hear a voice. Mm -hmm. I don't have either of those. Okay. So I don't have either of those. Um, I don't think I dream. People said everyone, my whole life, I can remember three times that I may have had a dream. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I just don't remember them. And now I realize maybe I just don't have the mental circuitry to have images in my brain when I'm sleeping. So um, I don't have uh, I don't have the ability to form mental images. I don't um, have an inner monologue. And so people would often ask me, what language do you think in? And I don't think in a language. I can't explain what I do. I have ideas and then they come out as words. But when I'm thinking to myself, there's no words that I use. There's just 
like abstract concepts Ooh. that don't have any pictures or sounds associated with them. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's, so, so I'm not qualified to answer the question there, but I am qualified to answer the question from a different lens, which is that when people start learning a language, there is a, and this is by the way, why we use the methodology that I just described with, with Optolingo, there is a tendency to translate first word for word mm -hmm. and you end up with really silly results because you know, um, if you go over someone's house, right? If you were to translate that the wrong way, you could imagine, you know, a sentence saying, I jumped over someone's house, right? Yeah, to yeah. go over someone's house, right? So in the beginning, there is a tendency to translate word for word. Then there's a tendency to translate using the right words, but using the grammatical construct of English, even though you're using uh, another language. Yeah. But then there's a real mental breakthrough and it probably happens around B1. There's a real mental breakthrough where you're not, you break this internal mental translation machine and you find that you can remove English from the equation and there's a direct neuromuscular path between the language you're learning and your mouth. And in fact, if you get really good at the language, right, high level B2, low level, uh, high level B1, low level B2, this happens to me sometimes. As I'm speaking, I'll think to myself, wow, how are all these beautiful words coming out of my mouth so quickly? <laughs> all right. Yeah, because I, I know that I definitely have gotten to the point where I speak Spanish and think in Spanish when I'm talking, but German still is, I have to think about what I'm going to say in English before I say yeah. it in German. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, w I do want to transition because I think this is really interesting. The You have the 20 languages that people can learn right now, but part of your goal is also to teach languages that are being lost. And on your website, you even have a stat that says every two weeks, one language disappears forever. Mm -hmm. And w what is your goal with this? Because as we've Bob and I have talked about this with multiple people. There is a global mixing of cultures and languages have the tendency to get lost as cultures merge. Mm -hmm. um, what do you see is the value in keeping languages alive and keeping them active in the everyday usage? Sure. So um, there's, there's, depending on who you speak to and what your definition of language is and how, how recent the stat is, there's probably around 6,000 languages spoken on the planet today. And that number will probably drop by half over the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a scary stat. And my language, Circassian, is an endangered language. Um, but the majority of the languages that are really going to disappear, like completely disappear over the next 50 years, are languages that have fewer than 1,000 speakers. And a very large portion of these number of these languages are clustered in Southeast Asia, predominantly in uh, uh, Papua New Guinea, which is one of the most ethnically diverse languages on the planet, and in um, Latin America, predominantly Brazil. In fact, there was just an article I read um, a few days ago, the last known speaker of a language in Brazil just died. Um, it was, a, it was a, uh, an uncontacted tribe that was discovered in the 70s before Brazil instituted laws that says that you have to leave these people alone because guess what happens? Um, we give them all these germs that we have built immunities for that they don't have immunities for and a big portion of their population dies. And that's what happened to this gentleman's um, village population. And then 
before in the 80s, before other laws were passed against uh, what happened here. Loggers came in and clear cut the forest and destroyed the ecosystem. And so there was something like six speakers left and then, you know, they got old and died and this guy got COVID and now that language is gone. Right. Wow. So this is how language is. Um, this is on the very small end. This is how languages disappear. Right. You have dozens, hundreds of speakers of a language. And then over time, for those reasons I just described, they disappear. Now, having lots of speakers of a language doesn't necessarily mean that it's stable. And having few mean doesn't mean it's unstable. There are probably only about two or 3,000 speakers of Circassian in uh, Israel in just two villages. But it's a very, very stable sociocultural economic situation there. And I do believe that Circassian will be spoken there almost forever, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so you've got languages that are disappearing on the very small end for the reasons I described, although not all small languages will disappear for the reasons I just described as well. Then on the larger end, you have languages like mine, Circassian, which are spoken by maybe a million or two million people. And, um, but we are not the language of uh, a country. We are not the language of a religion. We are not the language of an economic power. We are not the language of an entertainment power. And those are the only four reasons people are gonna speak a language. You're gonna speak a language because you can buy it, you can sell it, it gets you closer to God, or you, the government tells you you have to speak it, right? That's the only, or, or, or yeah, so, or, or there's entertainment value. Um, we're none of those. So that's where a lot of languages are, are really at danger. And what ends up happening there is the native speakers of the language, they give up the language almost voluntarily because they want to advance within the society where they live. So this is the case with Irish in Ireland. Mm -hmm. It's the case with Circassian in Russia. It's the case with Armenian spoken in Syria, where they give it up to be able to speak Arabic. Um, this happens all over the world. And this is the trend that uh, I'm most worried about. So, so why, like Latin as well, right? Well, so Latin is not a dead language because it is still the language of the Catholic Church. Yeah, um, but it, it, I always think Latin is an interesting one because it's still highly written. But there, I don't, I don't actually know how many people actually speak it still, though. I know it's taught in a lot of high schools, but what is it used for orally? Well, I would, I would uh, probably not much, but I would argue that if it were not the language of the Catholic Church, it would not have retained its prominence and relevance today. Okay. And I would argue that if, uh, if the Jews did not use Hebrew as their religious language, because, you know, historically, whether all religions, they were spoken, they, they were written in Greek and Aramaic and in Arabic and in uh, ancient Hebrew and more recently in modern Hebrew, if the Jews did not write uh, or keep track of the Torah in Hebrew, it's very possible that today they would be speaking a different language in Israel, right? So there was a reason for that language to be kept around. Uh, there's a reason that Georgia and Armenia, two very, very small countries, have their own distinct languages with their own distinct alphabets. That's very, very unique. And it's because they have such a large and long history using that language and that alphabet for religious purposes. Okay. Um, so, so why should we care about keeping these languages around? Um, there's a number of reasons we should care. First of all, we should care because languages like people are unique and valuable for their own right. I don't think anyone would say, well, that bum, you know, if he dies, no big deal, right? That human being is a fellow human being. 
the collection of memories and histories and everything that he or she has experienced is intrinsically valuable. And we should keep it around for that reason, right? Second reason is that there's value in diversity, right? Mm -hmm. Take, you know, I, I know you're not making the argument, you're asking the question, um, but why should we care about diversity? Well, the same reason that we don't want Amazon or Walmart to be the only store that exists on the planet, right? There's value in diversity. Uh, the third reason is that these languages are part of our collective history, our collective experience as a human race, right? And so when we lose something from these languages, we lose something of our collective experience and we are all collectively more poor as a result of that. Um, if the Mona Lisa were to burn tomorrow, God forbid, if we were to burn to ashes tomorrow, yes, there would still be copies of it, but the physical um, copy of it, the, the physical original version that would be gone. Would your life or my life change dramatically? No. But would we as a human race be collectively just a little bit more poor as a result? Absolutely. Well, I think about Notre Dame last year. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Whether, you know, you don't have to be French and you don't have to be Catholic to mourn the loss of that, that building. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people talk about the great fire of Alexandria. People talk about uh, the Nazis going through Europe and stealing art. You know, that it's like, it's like protecting the environment. One tree falls. That's a tragedy. The whole rainforest falls. And now you've got an economic collapse, uh, an ecological collapse. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the last reason for retaining languages is languages are like, <clears throat> I use this analogy all the time. I am a patriot, but I'm not a, um, I'm not, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not a nationalist, right? Yeah. Patriots are, nationalists are people who say, I'm better than you. So bow down to me. Patriots are people who say, I'm awesome. And you're awesome too. Let me explain to you all the ways that I'm awesome. And then let me learn all the ways that you're awesome. Right. Yeah. So I use this analogy about kids and grandmas, right? I got kids. I got grandmas. Mine are awesome. I love them all. I'm not saying they're better than yours, but I love them more than I'll ever love yours because they're mine. Yeah. <laughs> so like it. You know, that, yeah. that's, yeah. that's what I would say to why we should care. So on the flip side of that, there is a universal language called Esperanto, and I want to get your thoughts on that. And if you see value in this language becoming the language, the global language for, you know, the human race. Sure. So um, it's not actually a universal language. It's what's called an auxiliary language. Okay. And it was designed by, what was the guy's name? He was an optometrist or he was a physician. I think he came out of uh, Zemenhof. Yeah, Zemenhof. And he came somewhere out of what we used to call Yugoslavia or Serbo-Croatia or something like that. What he, what he believed is that um, communication breakdowns leads to uh, strife and to war. And so if we can maximize communication, we can minimize war. And so he created, at the time, he, he was not the only one. He was not the first one either. There are a number of auxiliary languages that are out there. And the idea is to create a simplified language that people can learn very, very quickly to improve uh, communication. So um, he came up with one. There is also, there's also a language out there. And these are also sometimes referred to as uh, constructed languages. There's okay. also a language out there called Interslav, which is a constructed auxiliary language that would allow uh, speakers of any Slavic language to understand and communicate with one another. 
Um, what else? There's another one out there as well. Oh, and then the other one that had some prominence for a little while was called uh, Ogden's Basic English. English. I think the guy's name was Charles Ogden. I actually spent a couple hundred bucks for his book because I bought at a book uh, a book auction. Yeah, let's see. Charles K. Ogden. I have it on my shelf. Basic English, <laughs> the system of basic English. So he was competing with Esperanto. And his idea was, why would we create a brand new language when there's already a couple hundred million people on the planet who speak a language? Let's just simplify English, simplify grammar, simplify the vocabulary, and use that as our auxiliary language. Um, these have all largely failed. Uh, nobody talks about um, basic English at all, other than weird guys like me who collect books. Um, <laughs> Interslav is um, really not even known among Slavic speakers. It's, it's kind of a hobby among a handful of polyglots. And I would say Esperanto is probably the most... Um, well served of these auxiliary or constructed languages. There's probably somewhere between two to 5 million people on the planet who dabble with it. Um, that's probably about half a percent to 1% of the internet connected population of the planet. So that's, that's kind of a small number when you think about it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm biased and I know I'm going to upset people who are passionate about Esperanto, but as a guy who's so worried and spend so much time trying to preserve an existing human language that has thousands of years of history behind it. I just don't understand why people would want to create a brand new language from scratch that's not spoken by any country. Um, that's not the language of any, you know, ethnic power or history or anything. And I know people who speak Esperanto would say, well, you know, we've done plays and we've translated the Bible and there's an active internet culture with jokes and, you know, all that stuff. And that's fine. That's true. But, and that's a reason to learn the language today, maybe, but it's still, it's almost like saying, well, if we were to, why don't create another language? And there are people out there as hobbies, they create languages. They're called constructed languages, conlang. Um, as kids, we did it all the time. As kids. Yeah. Kids do it. But um, I'm personally skeptical. I think uh, for, for, you know, I, I would say if people are interested in Esperanto, the reason you would learn it is because there's a community of people who speak it and maybe that's important to you. Um, but I would also say, and this is an argument a lot of people make for Esperanto as well, um, because it is such a straightforward, simple language to learn. If you've never learned a language before, it's a great way to get into language learning because it teaches you some very basic concepts about grammar and syntax and construction in a very regular and repeatable way. Yeah. Um, but not my cup of tea. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the advantages that people say is a benefit of Esperanto is that because it doesn't have that history, there's no connection. There's no ill will against other languages and people that are transitioning from like Polish or English or Chinese to Esperanto. There's no, it's not like they're switching to English or to a rival language and there's no, I guess, bad blood there. But yeah, I, I think if it were going to happen, it would have happened by now. Yeah. Right? And I didn't realize there were, there were so many attempts at auxiliary languages out there. It's, there it's yeah. There, there's at least a half a dozen that I've read about and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not passionate or interested in this topic. Yeah. And then there's a whole cottage industry out there of constructed languages. In fact, there's a handful of guys, mostly guys, that make a living constructing languages for uh, TV shows and for movies. Oh, yeah. Dothraki. Yeah. 
the Navi. That was it. I mean, tons of them. Ewok. Two right there. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Johnsy, we have Bob. Do you have any more questions? No, no. I think that's it. All right. I, well, I, I do want him before we get into our rapid fire round, Jonte. I don't know if you're aware that you're going. You're heading into the rapid fire round of our podcast. Uh, <laughs> please share your social media, your websites, where people can subscribe and and join Optolingo and everything like that. Sure. Well, we're we're on the web at optolingo.com. That's O P T I, like optimum. Opti, O-P-T-I, lingo, L-I-N-G-O.com. So optolingo.com, um, you just search for us on, we're, we're not super active on social media, but we are on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter. And if you just search for Optolingo on any of those social media platforms, you'll find us there as well. Um, anybody can go to our website and they can try our app for free. No credit card required, free as in free, free, free. You can go to any of the app stores, whether it's iOS or Android. You can search for Optolingo. You can try us there for free as well. Uh, if you like what you see, you can subscribe and sign up for one of our paid plans. And if you don't, that's cool too. Awesome. Right. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate your time today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I learned me. a lot. I learned a lot about I know. I'm, I'm excited to, I'm, I'm probably going to start with Spanish first and see if I can see how, how good it actually is. And then I, I really yeah. do want to pick my German back up. I have two failed attempts at trying to learn Italian, so uh, I, I plan on trying again. Do you? Would you ever consider doing Latin as a language to learn? Because I've always been interested in learning lang- uh, Latin to read some of the epics, like the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, not really. There, there's kind of two. There's two things that you know. It's funny. If, See, people always ask the bigger companies, what makes you choose a language? And they say, well, we do it for a variety of reasons. And they kind of give this non-answer. So I'll just give an explicit answer since, you know, I, I'm the founder and CEO of the company. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, we, we chase after languages that we think there's a commercial market for um, on, on the large end. And then we um, build courses for endangered languages from my region of the world that I think I can help to preserve. Okay. And that's it. So I don't think, I personally don't think no one's asked for, I have not seen data to support the notion that Latin would be a commercially viable language. Um, we, we wanted to do Welsh. Well, uh, we want to do Welsh. Um, we could not find enough qualified. We couldn't find any qualified um, language experts or translators to work with us to create the course. And so we thought if there's not enough people to create the course, there's certainly going to be less people who are interested right. in taking the course. Right. Right. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what guides us on the larger languages. Then with the smaller languages, there's a handful of languages in the North Caucasus where I'm from that are not related to Circassian, but the people who live there live, live close to us that I do want to help and support. Um, you know, and if every now and again, people will email me if I can help uh, in some way, sometimes I'll share my, my uh, materials with them so they can help preserve their language. But that's really what drives our calculus. Um, do I think I can help people who are from my part of the world? And do I think I can generate profits so that I can continue to fund people who are from helping people who are from yeah, my right. part of the world? Yeah. Yep. All right. All right, Bob, you want to get us kicked off with the rapid fire questions? Sure. All right, Jonty. So what is the first word that comes to your mind when we hear the word travel? Home. Interesting. 
Mm-hmm. All right. What home comfort do you miss the most while traveling? What home comfort? Um, private space. I have four children and a wife like and, you know, living out of hotels and suitcases, you lose a little of that private space. I, I have a dedicated home office here in a custom built home in Chicago. So I, I miss that the most. Yeah. If you could swim in any liquid, what would it be? <laughs> I don't even like swimming in water. So I, <laughs> I'd swim in water. All right. What travel book had the biggest influence on your life? I feel like such a dork for saying this because uh, I think the guy is a little bit um, overinflated, but the four hour work week. Ah. Tim Ferriss. Yep. Yeah. Say hello in your favorite language. Which one's that? Circassian. That would make sense. <laughs> should it, it, that question has never been more applicable to a podcast. I know. Like yeah. to, to a guest of ours. <laughs> If you can travel with anyone in the world, living or dead, who would it be? My wife. What is one item remaining on your bucket list? Oof. That's a long story. Um, my, my lifelong goal is to create the infrastructure necessary to preserve and promote the Circassian language. And uh, I have a dream to do that with a combination of physical in-person language learning facilities and online instructional resources and a hybrid of online and offline community. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a big thing on my list, but it's the thing that I want to spend the next 20 or 30 of my 20 or 30 years of my life working towards. And Optolingo gives me the platform to do that. It's a great answer. It's a heavy one. Yeah, it's a big one. If you could pick an actor to play you in a movie, who would you choose? Um, What's that guy's name? Um, Hang on. Robert Downey Jr. Nice. Oh, nice. Yeah. If you were stuck in one city for the rest of your life, which city would you choose? Hmm. I'm going to go with Chicago. Oh, nice, nice. All right. All right. That's where I live. Yeah. I live here for great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What is one piece of advice you'd give to yourself 10 years ago? Slow and steady really does win the race. Nice. I like to hear that. Yes. Yeah. Bob needs to hear that. Yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) It absolutely does win the race because otherwise what happens is you end up trying to go fast. You burn out. You stop. You know, if you, if you walk a mile a day, you will walk 365 miles at the end of the year, right? If you sprint for five minutes, uh, you're going to, you, you may or may not walk, you may or may not run for a mile. The next day you're huffing and puffing. Then you're frustrated. And maybe a week later at the end of the year, you're not going to cover 365 miles. Good, good perspective. Yeah. yeah. All right, John D. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Learned a ton today. Uh, Optolingo, I'm looking forward to using it and, and uh, yeah, appreciate all that insight on languages. Well, I'm glad. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad that you guys found it entertaining. I never sure in these podcasts if I'm speaking too much or too little, but. Oh no, it was uh, very informative. I hope our listeners will try it and hopefully give us and maybe use some feedback because I, I think language learning and travel go hand in hand. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Cool. So thanks a lot guys. 
at this point, we really don't have an excuse for learning another language because Optolingo seems to be really helpful. I mean, the, the fact that it gives you the majority of the verbiage and words you need to have colloquial, I guess, conversational language conversations, yeah. period. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there really is no excuse. It doesn't take a lot of time per day. And I'm really intrigued by the way he does it. Um, I want to give it a try because I've tried to learn languages before. I mean, I've taken I've taken different languages in college, in high school, and I've tried to learn on my own using audiobooks and things like that. I've bought uh, I've bought Italian kids comic books just to try to learn those. I've bought textbooks, so I've made efforts to learn a language in the past and. Yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely trying this. He he sold me completely. I'm very very intrigued. Yeah, I guess the the key is you know the 20 minute dedication each right. day. Not that and much time. Persistence. Yeah. Not that much time. No, not at all. Yep. So really looking forward to that. All right. So thank you for listening. Very quickly, uh, if you would not mind rating us, we cannot tell you how how far that goes in helping this podcast. If you want to do it, I mean, I guess we can because we've done it almost every outro now. <laughs> we've said yes, how important it's it is. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but if you want to support us in a financial way, you can do through do so through our Patreon page. One dollar a month. We'll throw you a sticker. You'll get a sticker in the mail. Uh, and we'd really appreciate that. It goes to our time, our efforts, our software programs, all those good things. And, uh, and, and that's it. You know, tune in next week and thank you for being a fan of the Traveler's Blueprint. <laughs>